Hi everyone, welcome to Huddle Home Office. I'm Marc Legier. Marcel Lebrun is best known as a tech entrepreneur, a former executive at Radian 6 and Salesforce. But he's also a very active and engaged member of his community, and also our very first guest on the Home Office podcast in April of 2020. He and David Alston joined me to chat about their proposal to safely reopen the economy in the early days of the pandemic. Well, Marcel is back, this time as a social entrepreneur talking about his latest venture, a plan to build 96 tiny homes on the north side of Fredericton. In addition to providing affordable housing to people in need, the development will have a social enterprise centre that will include a cafe, retail shop, offices and community spaces. Residents will have access to drug treatment programs, job skills and entrepreneurial training programs, and counselling support services. LeBrun's project is focused on the homeless and people in unstable living situations, but our conversation touches on housing issues generally and the challenges people are facing with increased rents across the region. I began our chat by asking him about the inspiration behind this project. You know, when I left Salesforce in 2015, I've always had interests in uh, justice issues and poverty. And so I started diving in, uh, mostly volunteering here and there. And, and like anything, I like to the kind of intellectual pursuits that go along with anything and it, it just kind of observing the various efforts that we have going on in our community. And I started to kind of go through, I went through, I wouldn't call it discouragement, but I went through a phase where it was like, I realized just how much of what we're doing um, meets needs, but doesn't change anything long-term. So you come back five years later and nothing's really any different. And so I started getting into more of the whole world of relief and development and asset-based community development and all that stuff. And uh, just started seeing things through new lenses. And a few years ago, I started researching, like, who's doing the best work in helping people transition uh, out of poverty or marginalized contexts in a way that's permanent? And so I started researching. And then Greg Hemmings, as you know, my friend Greg said, why don't you bring a camera along with you while you're doing that? And that ended up being this 12 Neighbors film series where I did a story on Homeboy Industries in L.A. and Co-Tenderloin in San Francisco and all these places. And then I came back and I kind of just absorbed everything I learned from all of those and then started thinking about applying it to my context in my city. And of course, in 2015, I was really excited about Fredericton's road home strategy, which was released, planned to end chronic homelessness in Fredericton in five years. And and at the time, we had about 70 people on a by names list of chronically homeless, known chronically homeless. And we were going to do a camp. We did a campaign. Jason Najen, who's a city councilor now, was the owner of Isaac's Way at the time, the restaurant. He led this community campaign. And I was excited about it. I went to the launch. I was one of the early funders. And we were going to build these these homes on a housing first basis. But now six years later, uh, our by names list has more than doubled and we've built four homes and um, a few more are going up. And then most of the funds got really redirected toward the city motel project, which John Howard's doing, which is great, but still, you know, we're not catching up where the gap is still growing. And then you, you just hear from all the, 
people working on the ground, just how, especially with COVID, the rents are exploding, people are ending up on the street, young people, seniors, just everybody who's end up where, okay, my rent just went up $1,000, or I got an, I got an eviction notice, not because I did anything, but they're renovating, and then they renovate, and then the price is higher because the market's paying that. So I felt like this is really one of the number one prominent issues in our city. And I liked housing first. I liked the philosophy of it. But um, in all the stories I did, it seemed to me that housing, yes, you need a roof over your head to work on anything else. But a roof over your head doesn't solve it by itself. So you need other things. And what came, what stood out to me with all the stories as I synthesized them is basically uh, three things, dignity, community, and opportunity. And basically, those who focused on providing people with a dignified experience really had a lot of success because they addressed this narrative that everyone has that identifies with their circumstances. And they, they, they say, well, I'm in this circumstance, so maybe I deserve it. This is who I am. This I'm a bum, I'm an addict, whatever. And if you can address that narrative and help people, as one guy in San Francisco said, Dell, he said, you know, people have dignity. They just forgot which pocket they put it in. We're going to find which pocket they put it in and help them to rediscover it, you know. And so that was a key theme. Uh, community was the other one, which is, you know, that the, the healing agent is often community as opposed to a, a, a medical practitioner or whatever. And so that was a key theme in all the places I visited. And then opportunity is the other one, which is don't just give me a sandwich, but give me an opportunity and help me uh, have a path to maybe change something. So, so that kind of led me down this path to go, well, how about a tiny home community with a social enterprise center why tiny homes? Because it's the most dignified model. It's not the cheapest model. It's, you know, you could buy a hotel and get people housed for less, but it's the most dignified model. I've got my own four walls, my own lock and key, my own lawn, my own private space, but I also have community because I've got all this shared green space with me and my neighbors. And then I have opportunity, which is the social enterprise center, because I can learn skills. I can, you know, in a patient work environment, uh, achieve my goals, but still treating people, giving people autonomy. So you move in here, it's your own journey. You can have this house for life, but if you have goals, we'd like to help you achieve them. And you, they're your goals and it's your timeline. And, but the culture around you is pulling you up, you know, kind of thing. So those were the themes that popped. And to me, it just kind of assembled into this model and yeah, so I started working on it. So with something like this, do you do you have a, a location in mind already that you're pitching? Yes, I do. So um, I so I've set up an, a nonprofit called uh, well, I'm calling it the Twelve Neighbors Community. So it kind of flowed out of the films, but now I'm building it in physical reality. And the little, little homes will be in little blocks of twelve, so there'll be twelve. Everyone will have twelve neighbors, and then I've set up a nonprofit called 12 Neighbors Community Inc. And we have purchased uh, land, which is in the north side of Fredericton, next to Walmart Smart Centers, the Walmart Supercenter at Smart Centers Way. And so the, the land is uh, 63 acres, 
Uh, we're going to develop on about eight acres of that uh, for, for this project. And it's walking distance to the grocery store, to the pharmacy, to McDonald's, to hardware store, and right on the bus route, right on the corner. And it's, it's not a dense residential area. You know, there's not, it's mostly kind of wood, wood lots around it. So yet it's only like, you know, two kilometers to downtown. So it's really um, uh, a location that um, I think will, you know, not run into the, my backyard issue, but also uh, when I did a lot of primary research with the community that's housing insecure and they all just universally, this was the place at the top of the list primarily because of the, because of the proximity to Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it really puts people not in an, in an isolated community. It actually puts them close to, to a hub, right? Yeah, exactly. And not a food desert um, where you're, you know, you're stranded. Um, and, and that was the other option where lots of different pieces of land that I looked at that many were on the bus route, but they were just too isolated. And uh, people were like, oh, I don't, you know, cause the buses, they're usable, but they're not usable on a real kind of daily basis. Like it's, it, if they have to go somewhere downtown and back, like it, it can take all day, you know, on a bus. And so if you have to go on a bus just to get your food, go on a bus just to get a prescription, go on a bus for anything, it can, it's becomes all your time. So this way you can get a lot of it right where you are. And have you had conversations with uh, people in the community who work a lot uh, with people in these marginalized communities about kind of where your project fits in that kind of continuum of of care and, and service for, for people in the community? Yes, I have. I've met with everyone who, all of whom are doing great work from, you know, Warren Maddock at um, the Fredericton Homeless Shelters and John Barrow at John Howard Society and Misty, as I mentioned, at Youth in Transition. And also Dr. Sarah Davidson, who uh, runs the Riverstone Recovery Center, who works with, you know, higher acuity people and ha have been working on and is still working on the Phoenix Learning Center, um, which, uh, you know, is, is going to be looking for a new location. But um, and that's the key is I want to uh, fit a piece of the puzzle into the, um, the housing continuum, as Warren likes to call it. And so you've got the emergency services that exist that John Howard and the shelters provide. Um, this is kind of in between where, um, you know, we can have people that are fairly high acuity, but not high acuity plus like the level of supports that Dr. Davidson's service would provide. Um, so they're people that are capable of living independently and want to progress, but they might not be ready to go from the shelter to an apartment building and they don't have the, enough support there. So this fits kind of that middle space, but there are also some who can come right off the street into this because uh, a lot of people are very capable. They just, you know, they were in a rooming house situation that the capacity disappeared and they ended up finding themselves on the street. So there's a very wide mixed acuity already on the street, but I, I see a mixed acuity in this and a very good alignment with the other agencies. So youth in transition, for example, they age out at 18 or 19 years old. So there's youth there that are ready for something to move on to. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of capacity. 
the other thing I learned <clears throat> is that there actually is nothing in the city for homeless or housing insecure couples. So all of our uh, kind of emergency level help or transition housing is, you know, there's the men's wing and the women's wing kind of thing. And so if you go to the city motel, if you're a couple, you have to, you know, he gets another roommate, she gets another roommate. And there's many couples that are like, no, we're not doing that. And so we'd rather stay out here because I can't sleep without him. I have anxiety, all these kinds of issues. So this allows us to have an option for couples as well. Right. And, and seniors too? And seniors. And that's, it's growing. I think there's, I think 125 people on the housing and the affordable housing wait list that are seniors. And um, again, it's the affordability of rents. So definitely uh, I think, I think young people, seniors, you know, single mothers, uh, non-elderly singles, which is the biggest group that the province has identified. And um, yeah, I, I think make it like any other neighborhood as mixed as you can. Uh, so curious about uh, so many things about this project. Um, in, in terms of the details of it, how about how do you finance it, and then kind of what are the obligations of of, of the residents? Like, will they own the houses, and 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 how will that work in terms of uh, financing and payments and all that kind of thing? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> with the um, affordable housing program. So for those units where we're working with social development, the program already exists. The individuals that are accepted into that are assessed and they get charged a third of their income for rent. So if they're on social development, if their income's, you know, 600 a month, they would pay 200 a month for rent. As, they're, as they progress and generate more income, their rent would go up, but it would stay at a third of their income until they hit full market rate. So, um, and the government will, uh, through the uh, subsidy program, will subsidize the rest of the rent. So we would be uh, charging 600 per month for a unit, but they might be paying 200 a month for the unit, that kind of thing. That is um, a program we're working through with the province. My discussions so far have been great. Uh, they, they seem very excited about this project. Um, and so, but we're just in the process of, you know, working through the details on that. Uh, as far as the funding, that program also comes with some capital grants, so that'll be helpful. But basically, uh, my wife and I are providing the seed funding with our family foundation. So we're we're going to put uh, $2 million into the project to, um, to start the build. And... Um, and then we're going to, you know, continue to invite others to partner with us uh, from the provincial government to the business community, faith community, you know, citizens in Fredericton and uh, to partner financially, but also with their time. We this we want this to be so in the social enterprise center, you know, we'll have a cafe on the front and the cafe is a business that can train people in food safe and all those skills. But it's also an intersection point for the community to come in and see what the place is all about, find out more, maybe volunteer and decide, oh, I'd like to be a, a Fredericton friend of a, of a, you know, one community member. And uh, we really want to tie this community into the city and not make it kind of an island that nobody goes there, no one knows what happens there. And uh, the Social Enterprise Center will help do that. And uh, so we're just going to invite people to come alongside of us and help make it happen. 
in terms of uh, the homes themselves, like, uh, will they be different in size or are they all, is it going to be like a standard size and what, what will a home look like? We'll have different models. Right now we have one that we're <clears throat> approving to start and our first 12 units we'll build will be of this model. It's a, it's a 10 by 24 tiny home with a cathedral ceiling, a nice little five, five to six foot uh, wide deck on the front that's covered. So you open the door, you get a nice little private outdoor area. Inside it has all the amenities, really a three-piece bathroom with, you know, shower, sink, toilet, uh, a fairly roomy kitchen, uh, induction stovetop, a full uh, like apartment size fridge, but a full height fridge, uh, you know, kitchen sink by the back window. And the whole back section, which is the kitchen and bathroom, also has a loft above it. So it'll have kind of a regular height ceiling with a, a cathedral loft above it. And then the front part of the building is kind of the living, dining, sleeping area. And so on one side, you know, a fold down dining room table that comes up from the wall and turns into a, a dining area, or you can close it and now you've got a sitting area. And on the other side, you can have a, a depending on if it's like two single people or a couple, uh, you can have um, a day bed that pulls out uh, for two two twins, or you can have um, uh, like um, a flip down model where it's a couch in the day and a and a bed at night. So that would be the idea. They're built really pretty. Like we've got a tongue and groove pine inside, so it's solid. It's very cottagey looking. It's built to the province's green building policy standards. So you know, R50 insulation in the roof, R30 in the walls, triple glazed windows. This place, you'll be able to heat it with a candle. It's going to be very efficient and very low footprint. So uh, they will also be city water and sewer connected. Um, so, you know, no worrying about wells or septics or things like that. Is there a, a will there be a path to ownership component of this or would they always be rental homes? At the moment, there'll be rental homes. Um, the thought is currently um, you come in and, you know, this is your house for life. But uh, we want to be a place where people uh, can can move on to better things. So in our culture, we'll be celebrating success and celebrating people moving on. But there's no timeline like you've got to move on in three years. But the idea would be is can we show that with this model – we're getting much better efficiencies in the use of dollars directed toward housing and supports because uh, people are able to move through more quickly than they would in, let's say, current government stock housing and that kind of thing. But in the future, it could be that we open to different models. Um, I, I do, we do have a, a, an ownership concept, but it's not a it's not legally ownership, but basically where we would set aside a bit of your rent every month to um, like an equity fund so that when you decide, oh, I'd like to move on, you can bring first and last month's rent with you for your deposit, you know, for the next because you now kind of saved into equity in your house, even though it's not, you don't actually own the equity, but you've built some savings. So it kind of feels pseudo equity, uh, but it's real value that you've built up. Uh, now, I know obviously housing first is is an important principle of this project, right? Of making yeah. sure that people have that sort of dignity and of having a house and a roof over their head and all the stability that comes with it. It just makes it that much, not easier, that's the wrong word to use, yeah. but it makes it more manageable to tackle the other things that are going on in your life from employment to 
to other issues. When you looked at this, did you think about uh, like a mixed income model in terms of like a lot of housing projects now have a mix of affordable and a mix of market rate to build those communities where people are of different income groups are connecting together. Did, did you look at doing something like this for this project? And, and if not, why you would rule it out? It's not ruled out. And yes, I think that we're, we're going to kind of, um, the, the key with anything is that we want it to be very successful from day one, not, uh, you know, hey, it's a little rough to start and then we'll get going. So we're going to, you know, I'd love to build all 96 homes all at once, but we're going to start with a few and then kind of grow. And I do think um, uh, a mixed model is going to uh, emerge as something that makes sense. Um, I've already had, even with the few people I've talked to, people go, oh, I could live here, you know. From the tiny home perspective, definitely, there's a lot of people that want to live very simply. And uh, young, young, a lot of young people are like, this is all, I mean, my kids are like, this is all I need, you know. So, um, but... We'll, we'll kind of we'll kind of see how it goes as we get going and maybe experiment a little bit. And it could be that we end up, you know, someday with 200 homes and, and it's all mixed and half of them people, you know, own or they, um, you know, they're they're just paying the rent because they want it. Uh, I mean, I even I met some of the people that live in the neighborhood and <laughs> I had some of them say, so how much are those? And, you know, I'm interested because. I live in the basement and I got to get out of there and, you know, this kind of thing. So I, I think we might be surprised at the interest, but we'll just see how it develops organically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, better than I do uh, with the conversations you've been having with people, but like a project like this couldn't be better timed. I mean, I, I just, um, just earlier today, I was having a conversation with my Halifax reporters. And of course, Halifax is an entirely different environment than Fredericton, Moncton or, or St. John. Uh, but the, that discussion we were having is all of this, you know, high cost housing being built. And and there's a lot of understandable reasons why it is high priced, right? The yeah. cost of con- new construction and renovation. And you can see all of the things that lead to the upward pressure on prices, including yeah. demand, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were having that kind of conversation about just the sort of project that you're talking about now. Like, what are the solutions to... Yeah in some ways success, right? Because right. the reason we're seeing housing costs go up is people want to live in our communities and yeah. various things lead to that leading to rent increases and the home price increases. So uh, you, uh, this project in that sense couldn't be better timed. Yeah. And I think you're, you're right in that there's, there's a lot of people that are not the ones we typically focus on who are clearly in an insecure housing situation, but there are many who are, you know, a couple of bad days away from it, who are struggling with the increased cost, who would love to find an option to just live more simply. And um, I think there is interest in things that are just kind of affordable by design, um, but still uh, have the kind of human-centric, people-centric design, you know, so it's not, okay, I've got a tiny little space on the 32nd floor. And, you know, uh, we saw people move away from those during COVID because they're like, I can't be locked down in here, you know. And um, so um, something with, you know, green space, 
but still as modest, I think could be interesting for a lot of people as well. So yeah. there's, there's certainly a lot of interest in, in this, you know, living simply small footprint in general, let alone to address housing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now I know you're you're a tech executive by you know by by background and you know not necessarily you know a, a housing developer though of course you are now with this project for sure. Right. Uh, one of the questions always that uh, that comes up a lot when I have conversations with people about this is why don't more developers do this kind of project right? So you know private sector developer comes forward with you know a proposal for a project and it's 100% market based. And, you know, in most of the housing developments that are pitched are that way. Do you see a lot of developers, you know, in Fredericton, but generally turning their minds more towards, you know, of course, you need to, to, to do housing developments that make economic sense, right? And it, for a lot of the affordable projects, you do need to be able to plug into the rent supplement programs and, and the capital programs to help build. Do, but do you see private developers turning more towards these type of projects in the, in the future for communities? Well, right now it's kind of going the other way. And in fact, what's interesting um, that the rent subsidy programs and the capital grant programs, in some cases, many cases, uh, uh, a developer might, let's say they're building an apartment building and they say, okay, we're going to put, you know, five units uh, affordable in this building. What, what you find is three, four years later, they actually buy out that agreement and they used it to cash flow things a little bit, but suddenly the economics say, you know, you're better off paying out this agreement and making this regular housing. So um, uh, we talk about what's the purpose of business? Is it to generate profit or improve the state of the world? And I think more and more businesses are seeing that they have a mandate that's bigger than just making profit. Having said that, in real estate, it seems like that's kind of what's driving things, you know. Um, but there are some models emerging that are trying to be, I guess, a little more affordable by design. But I really think that special purpose organizations that are not for profit is really a, the way to address it because you're going to get more than just a house and a house is not that just a house. I mean, a house is incredible when you don't have one, but um, being able to connect it to other things. The original view with housing first was, uh, you know, you talked about mixed acuity. The original housing first view was, oh, let's build four units here, 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 and there integrated all throughout the community. And the challenge with that is, no one can afford to provide any supports four at a time all over the place. You can't scale that. So what we're doing, I'm going to have staff there 24-7 and full-time community managers whose job is to just get to know everyone in the community, their goals, their stories, and to bridge things that already exist in the community and invite them in. So, okay, we have a recovery group coming Tuesday night. We have a, you know, a tax accounting service on in April, we have a, and we bring these things in and they know who is looking for those services. So um, that can be done on a reasonable scale, but you can't do it with four residents or with just four affordable residents. The, the other thing I've learned is it's a strange thing, but community 
like not every apartment building has community. And as odd as it would seem, um, oftentimes people that are in insecure housing situations are, are very dependent on their community. And if you just take them out of it and say, I'm going to pay for your rent and you'll have this house. Many people have done that and they find, why do they end up back where they were? Well, because the people that help them survive are over here and the people that they're scared of are next door to them and they just haven't gotten used to relating to that group of people. So with a community like this and you introduce mixed acuity and then you you, you bring people in the city so they get to know more people and go, oh, I know this person and this person and I can relate to them and, you know, you, you knock these walls down, then you help people feel like, okay, I can go to an apartment now because I know how to do this. And uh, I think that's the model that, I don't know, but all, I mean, we need to do all of it. We need, you know, we also need a high acuity plus solution like that Sarah Davidson's working on. That's a huge need. Um, there's people there that are going to be needing care their whole lives and we don't really have enough going on there. So it's kind of yes and for all of it, but I do think the nonprofit sectors may be better equipped um, unless we legislate it, right? Because some European countries, they say, look, no matter what, you're developing 20% affordable, off you go. If it just becomes legislated, it's 20% and you can't buy it out, you have to keep it that way, then, you know, I think that would generate some capacity I think you'd get a lot of pushback, you know, if you tried to pass that. Yeah. But other countries have, and um, seems to seems to work. Some countries in Nordic countries, it's it's a it's a right. Housing is a right. It's not a right in Canada and in New Brunswick. Um, you you know, if a child is in an abusive situation, the government has no choice. They have to act. If someone's homeless. The government does not have to act. There's no law that says that person needs a roof. And so some countries, it is a law. It's like, no, we have to house people. So then they put legislation in. 20% of all development has to be affordable, all that. We don't have those things. I don't think they I don't think they're bad. I think they, you know, I think those are worth looking at to over time. I know you've taken inspiration for a lot of, uh, from a, probably a lot of places in designing this particular project. But are there is there one or two that really inspired you that you saw that yeah. really have you really you can really see in the design of of what you have in mind? Yes, there are. Um, there's there's three in particular. Um, one is. Um, uh, an organization called Build Inc. in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which runs out of the Winnipeg or the Manit or sorry, yeah, the Winnipeg Social Enterprise Center, and Build Inc. is an Indigenous-owned uh, social enterprise that helps Indigenous youth learn uh, carpentry, crack filling, those types of skills. And um, I went there and I met a lot of people with heard their stories. It was founded by uh, Jerry Wood, who's uh, Canada's first Indigenous Human Rights Commissioner, and Sean Loney. Um, and the work they do is incredible. Um, people that come in, they're, they're alcoholics. It's okay. 
They show up late. It's okay. They don't come one day. It's okay. It's a very forgiving patient workplace. But then suddenly the employees go, oh, I, I'm good at this. I think I can master this. I like building walls. And then they get on this, okay, I want to be successful at this. And then their motivation to go into uh, to deal with their addiction increases because they now have something they want to work. They want more than, you know, uh, than, than drinking, for example. So uh, the stories were incredible and the success was incredible. So that's one story. The other one is Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, uh, the largest gang rehab reentry program in the world. They have nine social enterprises that employ 400 ex-gang members at any one time, including warring, ex-warring gang members baking cookies together in the bakery. And I went and said, how did you, how do you do that? How do you get these guys baking cookies with the gang tattoos that normally would shoot each other? And that was the key is just the culture they created there of how they value each individual. The founder says, the whole point of this place, all nine businesses, is that everyone here feels valued and cherished at all times. That's the whole point of it. And they have time to reframe the narrative about who they are. And huge successes, people that are reunited with their families and back employed again, spent their most of their lives in jail. Um, and they let people do the work. This is one of the things I learned from both these models is all they can do is give people opportunities and people choose to do the work themselves and they may want to do the work, but not have any opportunity. So you give them an opportunity, but an opportunity doesn't make them successful. And uh, at Homeboy, they say it takes what it takes. You know, it's just whatever circumstances end up happening that somebody decides I want to get off this off ramp, then they go, we're here whenever you want it and we'll help you take it. So those two were, were great. And the third one is a, an intergeneration, an intentional intergenerational community in Portland uh, called Bridge Meadows, where they addressed housing issue for seniors, housing issue for at-risk youth and foster parents by bringing them together in a model where the seniors got affordable rent in exchange for their services, mentoring and taking care of the children so the foster parents could go work and not have daycare costs and things like that. So the children had all these grandmas and grandpas around them all the time looking after them, and they felt really um, settled in their, in their living situation. The foster parent could likely sustain their role as a parent because of the supports that they have, and the seniors... Uh, live with purpose and dignity themselves because as they get older, they go like, who am I now? So they get to give back. And it was just a beautiful model and I loved it. And the theme with all three was dignity, community, and opportunity. Have you met people where you think, oh, they'd be perfect for this? I have. I've been, I've spent a um, number of nights this summer doing primary research with, um, we now have in Fredericton, um, our, our chief of police here has done a great job setting aside some authorized uh, tent areas where people are at least not asked to move all the time. And they're supervised and managed and kept clean by, by some staff that, that work for the, the police department. 
And so I've gone into these places and met people and just listened to their stories and then bounced things off of them, including locations. And, and you know, there are people who you'll meet one person who's, you know, been a um, heroin addict for 30 years, but you'll meet another person who doesn't do drugs and was paying rent and uh, has a disability or some anxiety or panic attacks and just ended up falling out and just now can't get back in. And their mental health is triggered by having to move, move all the time and all that, or even somebody moving in with them. Now they have, you know, another relationship to deal with. And um, if you give them a little bit of stability, you start to see they're very intelligent, very capable. Some of them are already Red Seal carpenters and, you know, they have uh, skills and they're already doing little jobs for each other. You know, I'm cutting the firewood for the community and things like that. So um, there are people I've met who I go, they could jump right in. And there's some that I go, no, they would need some, some serious uh, like medical level support. Um, but yeah, there's some. And I, I find the people that work with them regularly can very quickly identify who they feel would fit well, mm-hmm. especially if you can house a number of people together that might you know, already be in supportive relationships with each other, that can be a benefit too, because there's people that are, you know, they're, that's my brother and that's my cousin, you know, and we're just going to be there for each other. And if you just house one person, you kind of break up that support system. And so that'll be something we'll be looking at is, you know, how can we make smart decisions like that and uh, increase our success rates? Because right. I, I suspect there is it a combination of people who are, you know, absolutely homeless um, and those that are like just housing insecure. They're just in situations to start stable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I'm involved with eno- enough things that I I hear the stories on the ground. A mother whose son was the one earning the income and has got leukemia. And now they've got to go through this whole thing and he can't work anymore. And all of a sudden. They can't pay the power bill. They can't pay the rent, but the wait list is too long for affordable housing. Now they're 30 days from being homeless. What do you do? So there's a, you know, situations where people are very capable, but they're just in circumstances that pulled a little bit of a rug out from under them and they need something to, to work through that. So there's so many stories, you know, uh, from young people to seniors that I can envision. But in particular, I have in mind people that I've met who, who are living rough that I could see fitting in here, uh, particularly some of the women, like they are just by nature out like a soldier at war. Um, if they're living in a situation where they don't have their own bathroom and kitchen, that they have to negotiate these common spaces, they are always at risk of assault and manipulation. And you can see it in the, the anxiety that they develop and the many unreported uh, assaults that happen because they feel reporting would just increase their risk. What are your next steps? You have to go through a city approval process. Yeah, so we have to we have to get a rezoning, and so we're going to go to PAC on uh, September fifteenth, and then it goes to council. Um, so I think first, second reading, third reading, I think happens in October, and uh, then after that, of course, there's the process of getting our engineering designs approved for building permits. Uh, We'll be doing some municipal system installation. So we'll be going through that phase. 
And uh, but the, I've already started the design work. I have engineers working on you know all of those plans so that we can be ready. Um, that if the approvals go well, then we'll be ready to move very quickly. And I have already secured a contractor who's going to start building the homes off-site for the first few homes because we don't have our building yet. So we're going to build them off-site and um, and build them in advance. So even before we get the groundwork done, once we do, we'll be able to, to start moving a few homes on uh, right away that'll be uh, pre-built. And then the enterprise center will the construction will start for that around the same time. The enterprise center is in design phase, and I anticipate the construction for that to be next summer. And that will have a cafe. What are components? Will, will there yeah, be? Yeah, it'll have a cafe. It'll have the tiny home manufacturing. It'll have a retail art shop. So we'll sell some branded, screen printed stuff. But also, there's community members that make art or walking sticks, whatever it is, we will have that. So those are the three aspects. We'll have space for other social enterprises, and then we'll have a lot of shared space for supports. And at the back, where we'll have a community, a space for community members so that they can uh, have their own private space to, you know, to meet and hang out and do laundry and things like that. So there's no laundry in the homes, but there'll be a laundry facility in the building, for example. So that's kind of the basics of it. Uh, obviously, um, reception, main office, uh, but we will be making space available to all the excellent community groups that already offer great things to come in. If someone from, you know, a social worker wants to meet with their client, they, they may not want to meet in their home. They can you know, have a space here. So there'll be lots of in and outs of that kind of thing happening. Um, yeah, but the public will, it'll be open. The public will be able to come in and, you know, we'll be doing tours. And Is there nearby park space? The whole community will feel very park-like. So we will have a community garden, lots of green space between each of the blocks. Mm-hmm. So it will be very park-like. I think I know that area and, and you, you have that mix of density with housing and also also all the amenities, but it's near uh, park space and and woods, isn't it? Oh yeah. It's all, it's all woods uh, around there. And um, our property has a a trail that goes all the way back to, you know, the back of Killarney Lake, the groomer for Killarney Lake comes down through the property and then hops onto smart centers way and parks at a government garage. So there's a, there's a ski trail back there right behind the property, you know, 24 seven that snowmobiles go on and all that. So we do have lots of woods to do interesting things with that are, that are um, out in nature, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, because in a lot of ways it sounds, sounds like one of those perfect maritime communities that's like close to amenities, Yeah. you know, close to, you know, green space and active, active living, you know, amenities. Like it's, it sounds pretty cool. Yeah. I'm excited about it. I'm sure there are things that I don't know yet. I have a sufficient level of naivety uh, because if I knew everything, I might not do it. Um, <laughs> but I've been through hard things before, so I know there's going to be stuff along the way. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's it's great talking to you about this. I love talking about yeah, this. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. Good to talk I'll to you. Look forward to following the project as it as it yeah. develops. We'll have to yeah. we'll have to stay in touch on it. You've been listening to the latest episode of Home Office. And thanks, Marcel, for the great chat. 
You can follow the show on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend us to a friend.